your turn to be afraid. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast. Welcome back to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast, where we review horror movies, series, and comics. I'm your host, Saul. If this is the first time tuning into the podcast, remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. This week, I had the privilege of looking over a great graphic novel series called Case File Arkham. And I have to say that the series captured my attention from the second I read the premise. It's a perfect mix of noir and that Lovecraftian cosmic horror. There are two entries in the series. The first one is titled Nightmare on the Canvas, and it was released as a graphic novel on February 16th, 2016, written by Josh Finney and illustrated by Patrick McAvoy. This is where we were introduced to our protagonist, Private Eye Hank Flynn, as he's picking up on the missing person's case from a wealthy socialite. And as the story goes on, he starts to peel back the thin veil of reality to confront one of H.P. Lovecraft's most enduring horrors. The second entry was released on February 16, 2018. Detective Hank Flynn returns and is pulled into a case of love, revenge, and an elite family's generational feud, one which just so happens to involve a cult that is interbred with the spawn of the Sumerian god. If you're anything like me, this should have piqued your interest. And to help me talk about the series, I would like to introduce my guests for today's show, the creators of Case File Arkham series, Josh Finney and Patrick McAvoy. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Excellent. Both of us are excellent. That's two excellents. That adds up to a fantastic. Oh, that, that's great then. And, and thank you. For us, first of all, thank you um, for joining us today. Just taking the time to talk about, about the new the new um, entry in the, in the series. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. It's really great. Glad to be here. And that was a great intro. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. I uh, carved on my tombstone. <laughs> well, you're in the perfect place because we're in the crypt now, so. so uh, before we dive into the horrors that is case file arkham i wanted to ask you guys a little bit about your history Uh, how did you get into the business and how did you all first uh, team up that's pretty cool uh you want to go first josh or you want me to sure sure why not um i first uh, got my foot through the door with a book called utopiates which was uh kind of a cyberpunk uh, blade runner meets train spotting type book Oh, nice. Uh, once that was complete, I had gotten on to uh, a book called, I had started a book called Titanium Rain, and it was under Archaea at the time, who uh, apparently was also publishing a book that Patrick was involved with. And that is how I met him, as we kept doing conventions together. Uh, uh, that like Comic-Con kind of thing, or what kind of convention yeah. was that? Oh, it was several. What was it? Um, it was, was WonderCon in San Francisco the first one we met at? Yeah, definitely. And there were, I think there were a few others we had done, but we had done WonderCon a couple times. And, and then we did do Comic-Con in San Diego. Yeah. Our publisher at that at that point was was helping pay for uh, rooms for the creators. So uh, I was I was going around and taking advantage of that. Although it wasn't <laughs> as opulent as it sounds. It was like six of us in a room. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, uh, Patrick? How did how did you get started? Well, I was um, I was doing sort of animation uh, and art direction in the multimedia world for mostly kids' uh, educational multimedia. That's a fun field. Uh, but I really wanted to like, break out and do some more illustration. So I started doing uh, illustrations for role-playing games and collectible card games. I started doing the Call of Cthulhu game uh, and the... Um, uh, the first Game of Thrones collectible card game, 
for Fantasy Flight and things like that. And I was enjoying that. And I, I really, uh, I, I actually started free, broke free from my regular job and started freelancing doing that sort of thing. But I really wanted to do comics. So I, uh, I started looking around and uh, did a little comic book called uh, The Gatesville Company for a company called uh, uh, Speakeasy back in the mid 2000s when there was a big boom of companies. And that, that was going great until the company went out of business. And so then I, uh, I hooked up with uh, David Rodriguez, uh, and we did a book called Starkweather Immortal, and that was for Arkea, and that's where I met Josh. So, and that turned out, uh, it started as being a monthly book, but it turned out to be my first graphic novel, and, uh, and I've done a few since. And uh, then after... Uh, after uh, Starkweather, my next project was actually with Josh. We had uh, my next comics project, at least, and when we got together to work on uh, World War Kaiju. But in between, I got to do a few other fun things, uh, more game art, uh, more animation, and I was actually on contract with Marvel for about a year and a half doing uh, work for their uh, marketing division. So I, I did really high highly rendered uh, sort of airbrush looking uh, pictures of a lot of their main characters for the Marvel style guide back then. And then a lot of point of sale advertising. So that was a neat gig. Oh, nice. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So I've, and then I've uh, worked on a few graphic novels, uh, three now with Josh and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, and I did the, um, a, a, a series called um, Lost in Space, The Lost Adventures. That was really fun. That's been released as a collection as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a fun career. And, you know, well, just to be honest, I had never really – I heard of the Lovecraftian horror, you know, the Cosmos, Elder Gods and all that, but I've never really looked into it. I don't, As far as I got into was, like, what Stephen King kind of helps and kind of interweaves into his stories, like The Mist – and even um, I even think the the pre- the precursor to Salem's Lot, which I think is just called Jerusalem's Lot, uh, is a short story, and it includes uh, something that has to do with with one of the Lovecraftian monsters or beasts. I'm not sure what it what it, it would, he would consider them. And that's pretty much as far as far as that I knew. I knew Cthulhu, of course, which is I believe a lot of people who were into horror know. But I started researching just for this because I wanted to know a little bit more. Um, about about the cosmos and about the mythos and uh, I ran into that Call of Cthulhu game and I was like oh man I, I wonder what this is all about <laughs> and I actually f- bumped into your all's uh, World War Kaiju that seems very very interesting cool good good well the interesting thing uh, about uh, Lovecraft is that he has been so completely influential on horror mm-hmm throughout the 20th century, especially the late 20th century and into our current era, uh, that most people are far more familiar with the vibe and the uh, philosophy and the mindset of his horror without even knowing where it came from. Mm -hmm. So many films and novels have taken and borrowed from his mythos that even though it may seem kind of alien and foreign, there's something familiar about it. So how did you get into... Because it looks like you you've um, liked the mythos right for a while already. How did you get into into that? Um, my first exposure to it was actually uh, the Call of Cthulhu, uh, a role playing game in the nineteen oh, okay. eighties. Uh, 
I had uh, been in a comics, I had been at a comic shop and I had flipped through the books and I had a friend who had a few of the books. And again, it, like a lot of people say, uh, it was just so different from anything I had ever seen. It was so bizarre and unique in that, you know, these were cosmic gods and the whole nature of it. It was kind of hard to put down. And then later, uh, as I started getting uh, into doing prose work, we, I had been involved in a few anthologies that were dedicated to, you know, inspired by Lovecraft. And, you know, when I write anything, I do my research. I research the hell out of it. And that was really when I got to know Lovecraft's work and who he is and his history and his universe. As for me, uh, I started uh, reading Lovecraft well way back, probably probably in college. I picked up a I picked up a book just because I loved the cover. I believe it was a Michael Whelan painting that was really creepy, and I said, "Wow, this has got to be a good book." And I <laughs> picked it up as a collection <laughs> of Lovecraft stories, and sure enough, it was really good. And I started. Uh, you know, enjoying his stuff uh, on a surface level. I didn't really dive deep into it at that point. Um, but I, you know, ended up reading probably a good a good selection of all of his uh, more popular pieces. And uh, then when I was first starting uh, doing the illustration work, as I'd mentioned, I uh, got contacted by Fantasy Flight to do their their Call of Cthulhu collectible card game, uh, and then later on the uh, Arkham Horror board game, and so at that point I started reading a lot more because, like Josh, I am uh, sort of obsessive about doing um, research and getting the deep background on everything that I, I do. So, uh, along with doing about uh, eighty or ninety cards for that. Uh, game, I read just about everything by Lovecraft. I think I've I've read the entire uh, group of uh, uh, short stories and uh, poems and novellas, uh, even the embarrassing stuff, <laughs> <laughs> of which there is some really embarrassing stuff. Uh, <laughs> nobody, no, nobody's ever going to say H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is my personal role model, and if they do, you know, step back and, and run quickly. <laughs> I, I haven't heard of in, anything like that, but I, like once again, I haven't really looked into H.P. Lovecraft um, other than the, the stuff that is commonly known and the stuff that I look, well, I in, uncovered it while looking up uh, information for this for this um, episode. Well, I think part of the reason. Uh, at least my, my personal theory, part of the reason that he's so effective as a writer is because he writes about, uh, you know, cosmic horror, the feeling that uh, the other is scary, you know, uh, xenophobia on a, on a, both a personal level in, in that he doesn't like anybody who didn't look exactly like him and and on a cosmic level which is he pretty much thought the universe was out to get him and i think his the fact that he was just scared of everything yes everything comes, scared the hell out of him <laughs> and that comes through in his writing he's not just writing about some horror like oh what are we going to write about today that's going to scare the people he's like oh i'm so scared of this i need to write about it and i think <laughs> that's what seafood, scared of germs scared <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, yes. And he was and he was especially afraid because you can tell because he writes about it all the time of degenerate people, which he pretty mm -hmm. much thought was almost every <laughs> every other person. Every yes. race on earth. <laughs> Terrified of women to just like oh, an extreme. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes I wonder if he might have been closeted and he just didn't know how to deal with it. Might, might, might have been, might have yeah. been. He, he did not write uh, as a rule. Not only just didn't write strong female characters, he wrote, you know, ciphers for females. Yes, <laughs> except for the one that was based on his wife. Yes. He actually did marry a woman for a while, that poor, poor, poor woman. And also, if you read through this, these uh, narrators, often when his stories are often told through a narrator talking about something that happened to a friend of his mm -hmm. or someone they knew. And usually these narrators have such a loving description of the other guy. I just 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 wonder sometimes. That's all. Well, see, when I read um, the second the second entry, the, was it her blood runs cold? Yeah. Um, and I got to that little twist at the end. And then when I actually started, what I ended up doing is actually ended up hearing the audio version on YouTube of uh, what that it's based on. What, what is yeah. it? Um, the thing on the doorstep? Yes. And uh, I was like, well, that didn't happen here, but I can kind of see where it kind of um, – Right. It's a, a little bit different from from what I would have thought here on on the in in the story, but it I can I can see <laughs> I can see where that came from. Yeah, well, so. I uh, think on the doorstep we we deviated from the story quite a bit. I I enjoyed I enjoyed the deviation though. Thanks. Yeah. Well, part yeah. of part of that part of what has been really great about Josh's writing on these two books is that we've taken taken these uh, Lovecraft stories and just told them from a completely different point of view because yeah. you know, that was our concept to start with was let's put a proactive protagonist into these stories where Lovecraft's protagonists were always passive or <laughs> or even less, you know, very fearful people like, like Lovecraft himself. And so Josh has been able to, I, I really like the way he's been able to not only tell the stories from that different point of view, but also intertwine all of the, uh, the, the things we expect from film noir stories mm -hmm. uh, into uh, Lovecraft. And you would think they'd sort of be like oil and water, but we've gotten this nice <laughs> magical mix so that when we start with a Lovecraft thing, like thing on the doorstep, we can doorstep we also mix it with you know 50 percent raymond chandler well i did read a review and it someone likened it to like um the reese's peanut butter cup where it's like <laughs> you wouldn't think two things go together but it really really does go really well and uh, that was the thing that shocked me was uh, when this uh, project first got off the ground and patrick and i came up with the idea and the way that it came up was very interesting it was Patrick had been known for doing Lovecraft work, and we had been getting a lot of questions. Well, okay, are you gonna, you guys gonna do a Lovecraft thing? Well, people keep asking. Okay, and uh, I just came to the conclusion his his narrators were always so passive. The world was happening to them. They were a victim of the entire world, waiting for you know doom to uh, finally strike them down or drive them mad. And it's like it just seemed like a very difficult position to write from. And I was talking to Patrick and at some point on the phone, we're, we're brainstorming and Patrick had multiple times in the past said, I'd like to do something like Angel Heart. 
And then I had mentioned, yeah, we're Lord of Illusion. And it just clicked. So okay, so that's uh, that was actually gonna be my my uh, my next question is how did the series come about? So kind of just started kind of throwing things together and um, actually developing it together. Well, what I'm what I'm finding with the creative process, the older I get, is often the ideas exist before you realize they're there. And clearly, okay. this was a mindset that I am convinced both Patrick and I had been brewing in the back of our brains for probably a year or two, if not longer, and it just finally, something clicked. Yeah, I had actually uh, sort of pitched some ideas for a uh, a detective noir, more of a traditional, if you can say traditional, uh, occult detective thing to uh, the fellow I had done Starkweather with, David Rodriguez. And I'd been, you know, pitching around things, you know, I need a guy in a trench coat with a 45 and there's, yeah. there's magic and there's, there's monsters and things, but it didn't, it didn't ever click. You know, we didn't really end up developing it. So I'm glad it didn't because <laughs> as soon as I started, you know, Josh and I started talking about this and I was throwing in a few of those ideas. It was just like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is percolating. So yeah, it was really, it was really exciting. Actually, we were, we were just buzzing on the telephone like like teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> we well, still kind of are whenever we're talking about the project. That's right. Well, that's that's that when you when you hit on an idea that you you feel like it's going to be great, you kind of just like you you don't you don't want to stop talking about it, and you you get really excited about it. Well, kind of the beauty about this is, you know, often the plots will, you know, the plots so far in the last two books have started with me, but then. Once I map out a treatment for what the uh, plot's going to be, I always end up talking to Patrick and back and forth, and that helps change the idea. Or he says, you know what would be really cool is if this was in there, and then I'd go and write it. And... <laughs> it's an organic so that, process. So, so that, that's good. I mean, he, he helps you, even though he's the one who's in the industry, and he helps you with the writing process. Do you, do you kind of um, have something that in your mind what, what he want, you want him to draw, or is that something you leave to him, or how does that work? Well, we'll get Patrick's take on that uh, in a second, but uh, my own personal take is with this project specifically, I wanted him to have a lot of freedom. I did not want to be the uh, tyrant writer that said it has to exactly be like this. Occasionally, there'll be something very specific that I'm very um, clear and descript on what I want. Uh, For instance, uh, the portrayal of Sheb Nibiroff in this book was uh, very specific. But I would say probably at 70%, uh, 75% of the time, I tell him to go with his instincts. Yeah. Is that, that fair? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's pretty fair. Although Josh does uh, help uh, with the art because he, uh, he puts together uh, some of the backgrounds uh, here and there, uh, which is very helpful. And he does a kind of uh, a fumetti thing, which is he... <laughs> He'll he'll have a lot of reference, and he, yeah. instead of just giving me reference files, he'll put them on the page and lay them out with an idea towards how he wants the page laid out, and along with rough rough dialogue in uh, word balloons. And so he gives that to me, and then I'm free to either follow it or throw it away and start over. But at least I know exactly what he wants in terms of relative sizes. Of yeah. things on the page and and then I've got the reference that he sent right there in front of me too so that's that's usually very very helpful yeah, I had another interviewer ask about the portrayal of all the monsters and of course 
what this was leading up to is again the portrayal of Shubnibaroff. He wanted to know whose fault that was. <laughs> yeah, that that one was all yours. Uh, I've I've designed most of the monsters, but that one was uh, Josh's. And, and my uh, yeah, I was saying yeah, no, no, most of them almost almost always it's just you know Patrick goes with his instincts. So you know if I was to procure the ghouls, I would have made them uh, kind of canine looking, but. Instead, we've got kind of more of a Nightbreed freak show, and I, I prefer it. <laughs> I thought it was a much more original, interesting take on the uh, ghouls in the first book. Thank you. Thank you. And then so uh, it's a very back-and-forth uh, thing where, uh, you know, Josh will give input on the look uh, as we go, and then I'll uh, – because he doesn't give me – real specific ideas, usually unless he needs something specific, uh, of what the characters are doing or what their, uh, you know, what their posture is or anything like that, or the acting, essentially. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll have the characters acting in different ways and then send it back to him, and then he will adjust by doing the final script after he sees the art that makes everything really flow together nicely. So it's a, it's a good uh, a good kind of uh, a flow that we have that uh, you don't get in a lot of a lot of uh, artist writer combos. Yeah, the process that we've built up on scripting is probably one no not probably is one of the reasons the book reads the way it does is that it's a bit more involved, it's a, it it's a bit more uh, convoluted and takes more time, but the organic process in the back and forth really does create more of a smooth, genuine product. It's really allowing us to use the uh, comic medium to its fullest. And I, I like the fact that I can send Patrick a rough, rough draft with the speech bubbles and kind of a rough layout with reference. And then once all the art's done, I go through and rewrite the whole thing. And you know, usually the biggest compliment I, I feel I can give Patrick is when the art is so good, I don't need to say anything. That <laughs> maybe a line or a dialogue can be cut because the person's expression says it already, or the action in the scene says it way better than any words could. So I, I don't even have to put the uh, text in there. So how do how do you decide what stories you want to adapt, or is that something that kind of just naturally comes about or do you have your uh, list of stories you want to make sure you touch well in the, uh, in the first book we went through a lot of different ideas until we finally came up with pickman's model as being the first one but for the second book boy that was all josh's baby he took a flash of inspiration uh, in the middle of the night yeah uh, listening to a chandler story and realizing how well it could overlap with thing on the doorstep and i will not say which story it is <laughs> yeah, we, we've been very, very circumspect with that with our interviews because uh, anyone who's read uh, much Chandler, if we tell them uh, what story it's based on, they'll they'll know the end of the mystery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I did see a nod to Chandler in at the very end of uh, of the ser of the oh yeah book. yeah the, the diner the diner yeah so that that, that was that was pretty cool uh, so Bickman's model. I, I had never realized I had already kind of seen the story on uh, a night gallery. Okay, I was going to ask if you saw the night gallery. There's yeah. multiple versions of Pickman's model. Yeah, they did a pretty good. They did a pretty good version of it. They also did Cool Air on Night Gallery. Oh yes, they did. 
was that where I think was that what I think that's where I saw it because I remember seeing an episode, but I wasn't sure that was Night Gallery because I saw it when I was like five or six. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and I remember actually there was an anthology um, movie. I don't know what movie it was though, and it had the I, I always mess up the pronouncing of it. The, <laughs> the Necronomicon. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> I can never say it properly unless I'm looking at the word. You know, that's one of those films that everybody wants a copy of, but. Unless it's a bootleg, it's unavailable. Yeah, and it was on. I believe I saw it on like, like um, what is that? It's not stars. It's their encore. One of the encore movies. Um, yeah. And it was there, and I saw it Cool Air. So I think that's where I saw Cool Air. Ah. Oh. And then of course because encore back in back in um, I don't know if it was late nineties, early two thousands, they had every day like around around 10 o'clock in the morning 11 in the morning they had the series night gallery and that's where i picked up um watching night gallery uh-huh. so that, i guess i guess that really just led to me because i was always a big fan of twilight zone and mm-hmm. um w- saying all that because that kind of brought me to this to, to do wanting to do a podcast about let's review or let's talk about horror related things so i want to ask you guys what is it that other than hp lovecraft what else kind of influenced your your love of doing this uh, well i think just growing up reading comics (laughs) and i was always uh always interested in art so i was always uh following you know my favorite artists in comics and that really got me into into doing this kind of thing in general and I have, uh, and then that love of classic comics got me into going back even farther into classic uh, 20th century illustration, like N.C. Wyeth uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, also the pulp, the pulp uh, artists are really influential to me. I have a number of uh, great books on uh, pulp art, you know, with photos taken from the original paintings that still exist. Not a lot of them do, unfortunately. <laughs> but that was just an amazing uh, era, the uh, early to mid 20th century illustrations, fantastic stuff. And then the 50s and 60s uh, comics are really influential to me as well, uh, which worked out great for uh, Case File Arkham because I had never done uh, sort of inked work like this before my, I, I, you know, I'd done some inking obviously being an artist in general, but I'd never really buckled down and said, I'm going to, you know, study doing this sort of photorealistic pen and ink art that was popular in the 1950s and sixties uh, in the comic strips, the United States comic strips. And uh, so my love of all of that really came into play doing Case File Arkham, and that's been nice. Uh, and especially if I can say the uh, uh, in the 60s, Warren Publications came out with these books called Creepy and Eerie, and then later uh, Vamprella. And they got some of the best comics artists working in black and white at that point, people who had been... Uh, doing, doing work for EC Comics in the 1950s, especially uh, at, like Al Williamson. And so those those books are really, you know, formative for me uh, in terms of what I've done with Case File Arkham. I'd say basically Al Williamson uh, and uh, Alex Raymond, who was a comic strip artist who did a strip called Rip Kirby. Those are probably my two biggest influences for Case File Arkham. 
So boy, I, I could just go on forever rambling about this stuff, but I think I've probably made some sort of point. So Josh, your turn. Well, I was kind of a latecomer to the horror genre. As a, as a kid, I, I just avoided it like the plague. It scared the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> aside from, say, Alien and uh, The Thing, which were both very, very high on my list of films. And then... I'm not really sure what got me going down the path. I mean, there were things going on in my life that drove me towards seeking it out. But uh, I went on a hard John Carpenter kick. And uh, then from there, I just started viewing everything I could and found that uh, when horror was really, really good, I got something out of it. Um, again, for the purposes of this show, I, I it would take too long to explain, but... <laughs> Really, as far as Case File Arkham's concerned, it is horror, and it is interesting that that's primarily the audience that we've pushed it towards, but I've approached both books primarily as it being a detective noir story that just happens to have uh, monsters and supernatural elements in its world. I, I really didn't want this to be a wizard detective series. I wanted this to be uh, a hard-boiled Chandler-esque detective that's in Lovecraft's universe interacting with it the way he would, or at least a very um, 40s noir interpretation of Lovecraft's universe. Let me ask you this. You, you mentioned the the thing. Yeah. Was that inspired by H.P. Lovecraft? Yes. Okay. I, going back and thinking about... Um, you said, you know, you watch that and then thinking about the monster, the way it looks and what it does. I kind of really, really um, like, oh, maybe it is inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. Because there is one story, right, where they go into the mountains and stuff. Uh, Mouth of Madness. Yes. Mouth yes. Madness. So um, or mountains at, at the Mountains of Madness. The Mouth of Madness is the John Carpenter film. Yeah. At oh, the Mountains of Madness is the, yeah. is the book where, where so, they go to the uh, Antarctic. So yeah, so, so you see, um, that, like you said earlier, just because people don't haven't read his stuff or like that, they they are influenced by stuff that he's done because of other right movies, shows, comments yeah. that have been. And, and things things like the thing are are really uh, yeah really uh, based on his his ideas that universe is a cold and dangerous place and that the things we'll meet in the universe are so different from us that they'll be uh, monstrous and destroy humans without even trying really and beyond <laughs> our understanding yes completely beyond what our brains can can entirely comprehend which is why most of his protagonists that in his stories would go mad right yeah. <laughs> One of the things that really, some, uh, at least to some uh, extent, they come out of it changed. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me about uh, a lot of the Lovecraftian gods is they're portrayed as demonic or or actually being um, actively evil, which is a very um, I guess what uh, more uh, Christian? Uh, yeah, more level. of a Judeo-Christian uh, Western yeah. religion kind yeah. of interpretation. What's Which, more like if it it isn't if it's not this, then it's evil. 
Well, right. no, it, it, yeah, like, but but the thing to understand is that a lot of, well, some of Lovecraft's monsters, like the <clears> ghouls, <throat> definitely you could classify as evil, um, but like Cthulhu or uh, Dagon or a lot of these, you know, cosmic gods, it's not that they're evil, it's that they're so different from us and so beyond, we don't even matter, we're just mm -hmm. in the way. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, not even very much, unless it's, we ram them with a boat. And it's kind of like what like Galactus <laughs> in the Marvel. Um, it's not that he's evil or good. He's just that's what he is. That's right? that's a good that's a good analogy. Mm -hmm. Sure. Except except he will. Galactus has, in a way, what you'd think of as human thought. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got thought that we would recognize as being logical and human. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. even even the thought processes of these. Uh, Elder gods in Lovecraft's world, uh, you know, aren't even close to the way we would reason. Yeah. Um, uh, another, an interesting thing is that the real evil in in a lot of the Lovecraft stories comes from people, either yeah. people who've been driven mad by seeing this stuff, or people who are sort of in a misguided way worshiping these gods, or like, uh, you know, the, the cult of Cthulhu wants to bring Cthulhu back. I mean, yeah. they're doing evil things, but they're people. Cthulhu himself is just, you know, sleeping. He can yeah. care less what they what they do or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so going back to what uh, what Josh was saying about the noir, you know, the noir stories and all that. What I really enjoyed is that yes, there are the, the monsters and all that, but that's not the point of the story. Because he's not going out to stop the monsters or stop the the whatever's going on, he's out there to solve the case. It just happens that he's running into these right TDs or monsters or like that. And it's not like other stories where the the protagonist or the hero wants to go out and stop the monster. It just happens so that he stops it in you know in one or the other or whatever. Or and then I guess one. Well, you have to read to to know yeah. to know yeah. But uh, the the second book, too, uh, something I really just wanted to keep bringing up over and over again was uh, interacting with the supernatural and a lot of these monsters was not a whole lot different, uh, not much different from dealing with the underworld. You know, that, that bit about, uh, you know, if it's a con or if it's a mobster with a gun at your neck or uh, an ancient god wanting sacrifices, it's all the same game. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, if they, if they, I like that line. Basically, uh, <laughs> Flynn says, you know, it's it's all the same. If you want me dead, I'd already be dead. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's a mobster or an ancient god. So since I'm not dead, you want something. So what is it? <laughs> so, uh, so we kind of already touched on Flynn. You know, he came from yeah. kind of like you know the the Ray Chandler stories, your the your love for noir and all that. Yeah. Are we going to know a bit or I'm guessing we're going to know a little bit more about him in the future as far as why he's able to see these things. I know we kind of they kind of touched it in the second book, uh, but not they didn't really explain it. They just kind of said this is why, but they didn't explain why, um, what happened or what why he has that marking. Yeah, that's going to be an ongoing thing. That's uh, one of the things that will be kind of dropped as bread crumbs. Uh, in the continuing books is you learning a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more what the hell happened to him in the South Pacific mm -hmm. uh, and what the hell is it with that scar and that weird hallucination or whatever happened on that island that is yeah. causing him to, to be able to see the other world and occasionally um, 
he is no longer aware of what he's doing and things happen. And, and that's a larger pro we we've actually got the answer, but we can't say it. <laughs> oh, oh, of course, because uh, well, spoilers, right? <laughs> right? That's right. Although we've we've dropped some some good clues and a oh, lot yeah. of combination of uh, if you follow the visuals closely and then what people are saying, you can at least get a few hints. And I'll say this is it's going to culminate in uh, some sort of encounter in Innsmouth. That's all I'll say. Oh, nice, nice. So, um, how about Glinda? Is is she something? I I haven't been able to f see find her in in the mythos. So, is she made up for the the series, or how did how did she come around? Well, uh, remember, Patrick and I. Uh, oh well, I was just I was going to hand it to you, but I was going to quickly say that uh, if you remember what I said, I had come up with uh, a uh, an idea earlier on about a, a you know a cult detective style person. I had. Uh, and we were first coming up with this thing. I said, well, my, my idea before, I had this sort of gal Friday who could do some mysticism stuff, and I gave it to Josh, and he, he came back a day later with Glinda, fully formed, who had nothing to do with the character, I said, other than she was female. Really? <laughs> Is that really how it happened? That was really how it happened. I gave you a few ideas. You know, he's got to have a, a good-looking woman to talk to, sort of his sort of an assistant and she can kind of maybe have some supernatural stuff. And what do you think? And like, I think it was like one day later you had this whole, <laughs> <laughs> and it was nothing like what I'd said other than, well, she's female. <laughs> wow, I really didn't think it was that much of uh, I thought it was a little more organic than that, but okay. Then yeah. Um, yeah, this is a creation of our own, I guess more than me than uh, Patrick, but Patrick had uh, suggested a girl Friday who uh, had magic, and I guess I ran with it, and now she runs a, uh, you know, the character runs a bookstore that's of ancient tomes and para uh, parapsychology uh, books. Uh, she's a druidic witch with a very, very involved background. Mm-hmm. And uh, people kept asking, well, what's her story? And as a writer, I had to know. Even if I never told it, I had to know what the background was to kind of inform her actions. And people kept asking so much after book one, wanting to know more. So I put more in there. And it just opened up so many doors that just like the scar on Flynn's head, um, her, back, her past and why she's hooked up with Flynn is going to have to play out more. Nice. I, that's that's what I like. Uh, that it's very what it, it kind of makes it serialized. Even though the stories are self-contained yeah. themselves, the the Bane backstory of Flynn and Glinda is going to be more serialized. Well, to reward the people that listen to all the podcasts that Patrick and I do, I will drop a hint about what what originally uh, occurred in my initial draft and where it'll go from there. A lot of what you see in book two was mm -hmm. already what I had uh, figured out in book one, what, are, what the past had to be. I just didn't expect I'd ever need to say it. I didn't realize there would be that much interest, uh, but that, that had all kind of already existed. The big hint that I'll drop that again goes back to book one is the bit about the uh, statue of Cernonos. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, Statue with the uh, very, very big pecker. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. 
she's got multiple of those all over the place. And what I was trying to allude to, um, if you know anything about those old uh, Druidic and uh, Celtic myths, is she had been calling, wanting a certain sort of man to enter her life, that uh, there was a certain archetypical male or the male that she had wanted to draw to her uh, life and she wasn't sure if Flynn was him or not. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. The name, is that, um, is that supposed to kind of throw us as to if she's a good guy or a good bad or bad girl or a good girl? Uh, what the hell? I'll drop this one too. It's not a huge revelation. That's not really her name. Oh, okay, okay. That's the idea. The thing is, is, you know, Glinda the Good Witch, of course, Wizard of Oz. And there are <laughs> quite a few Wizard of Oz references in mm -hmm. the books. Um, but uh, it was mainly, it was funny. Uh, Glinda the Good Witch, you know, instantly, yes, she's a witch, but she's not evil, was the idea. And the idea is she took it for that reason. Um, in... Um, magic or the mythology of magic going all the way back to like what 2000 bc 3000 bc there was always this notion that if you knew someone's real name their true name mm -hmm. it had, you had power over them and you could do curses on them and it, it over the years or uh, centuries the uh, mythologies of if you knew someone's true name what you could do Took, took on a life of its own in different cultures, and it plays a big part in Celtic uh, mythology. So I figured as far as her trying to make a break from her past and to protect herself, she doesn't use her real name. Okay, okay. That, uh, that's makes it even more interesting to me to figure out what uh, her backstory now. <laughs> so again, that was one of those elements that I had to know that I didn't think I'd ever need to reveal in the story. Mm -hmm. There was just such interest. It's like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll yeah, that, that'll come up eventually. Well, that's how you know you made a, a good character, right? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when people want more than you, that you didn't even think that... Uh... Needed well, to you know, it's the same thing with people kept asking about Flynn and the South Pacific. The, mm -hmm. the, the fact that, again, that's something that Patrick and I, we know, we have that fully developed, and that is something I won't drop hints of. <laughs> uh, the fact that we know what happened to him in the South Pacific, and we know where that's going to take him, that, that it's going to be a book of its own, or will have to be, uh, regarding Insmith. See, that was all things that, as a writer, I needed to know before I even wrote anything, even if we never said it. And the people, and we get questions constantly. Okay, well, what, what, what's with these nightmares? What is he seeing? You know, what, why did uh, Pickman say that? No, you're seeing the real reality. This is the dream. Why did mm -hmm. um, Asnath say you're marked and somebody has plans for you? Th that the fact that people keep asking means okay, yeah. Well, I'm gonna say this again. Anyone who's listening needs to go out there and needs to get these books because they are. They're beautiful. They're, the, the illustrations are, are beautiful. And I'm not one to actually enjoy black and white um, comics, but it, when it comes to the noir genre, I kind of enjoy the noir genre being black and white. It just kind of lends to the feeling, um, at least for me. And mm -hmm. the, the story, like I said, it, it, it it's do well done, um, like a mystery. It has the monsters, it has the horror. So I, I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to go out there. I will leave the description for where to locate them on, at least on Amazon. Is there somewhere else where people can find them? 
Uh, we can you can get them from the Zero One website. Some stores will carry it. You can get stores to order it. But really, really, what helps us the most is if you order it from Amazon and then leave a review. You have no idea how much leaving a review on Amazon helps creators like us. It. Yep, it's our bread and butter. Yeah. So I'm guessing since you we've been talking about that. We're going to get at least a couple more of uh, Case File Arkham? I would like to keep making them as long as people buy them and Patrick isn't sick of me. <laughs> yes, and, and I'd like to keep making them uh, as long as Josh shuts up once in a while. No, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I, 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 too, yes. there. It's a real, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, once-in-a-lifetime kind of property and if people kind of uh, agree with us and help us make a living at it uh, you know it's the sort of thing we both like to just keep doing and, and and revealing little bits and pieces over the years it would be fantastic I mean you know, you're another one I about people keep saying is when people ask me things I know we're on the right track you know what the one I've been getting the most lately is Patrick What's that? is Asnath is coming back right Asnath oh. is returning, right? Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to need to do that then because everyone keeps asking. <laughs> She's going to come back, right? She's a good femme fatale. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, no, no body, no death, as they say. Let me ask you guys this. Um, um, what is a dream um, project that you would like to either work together other than case file a oh. dream a project that you'd like to work together or as you know whether it's together or not was there something that you guys would like to work on oh uh together or not together either either or either uh, really the dream project for me by myself is um I would really like to re return to uh, Titanium Rain, which was an earlier project of mine, give it a thorough rewrite and give it the treatment that it always should have gotten uh, with a better artist than me. Because uh, I, Kat and I illustrated ourselves and we really, it, we, we did a fair job, but it really needed someone who uh, was an A-list talent like Patrick. Uh, Patrick's not the person to do that project. It's he, too much tech. I, I'm yeah, not exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not enough organic stuff for him. It would be the dream project, and I guess with Patrick, I would love, I love to see um, the Case File Arkham uh, books turned into radio dramas. Oh, then that would that'd be nice. Uh, that'd rock. Actually, you know what? I was going to. Uh, I was going to mention that myself. I was I was going to say I'd like to do exactly the same thing because I know Josh has done some radio drama work, and I would like to write the music for it. So uh, oh, that'd be awesome. Who would be your dreamcast for the voice of uh, Flynn and for Glinda? Oh, we already know about Flynn. Oh, okay. Is that you remember so who we decided, Patrick? I know we talked about it, but I'm completely blanking. Who was it? You called me up and said, well, if you ever get those audio comics guys to do a radio show, you should get Henry Rollins. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, he, he would be perfect. And actually, that was even before he did uh, He Never Died, which is a yeah. fantastic low-budget horror flick he starred in. And yeah, after that, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
How about for not all about that? How about for Glinda? Oh, that would take a bit more thinking. Oh, sorry about that. I'd uh, probably take a bit more doing to figure out who to get to do the voice. Really, ideally, I would probably want to pick someone who is playing against type. Um, or you know, like, for instance, you know who would be good if she could pull off the uh, the period lingo would be um well no actually she could would be either uh what's it christina hendrix or the woman who played uh faith on buffy one of them hmm that's pretty good I, well christina hendrix would be the live action version yeah exactly least, that's kind of at a least given maybe 10 15 years ago but she she's the absolute perfect body type yes. voice and everything uh that's a that's a really good point and and as to your uh it, one thing i just wanted to um emphasize a little bit uh, when you were talking about the period lingo i mean definitely people talked differently in movies like that so it would be great yeah. to have somebody <laughs> who can do that sort of diction from movies you know like uh like mary astor in uh the maltese falcon you know that yeah they just had a particular way of talking back then that, that a lot yeah. of people can't uh, replicate now and it'd be really nice to have that all right so before we we close this this show um is there anything you guys want to add about case file arkham again i reiterate uh buying it on amazon does us good and even if you didn't buy it on amazon please i ask you above anything go and leave a review you have no idea what that'll do for us uh, when people leave reviews, it helps Amazon figure out what type of people read our books and then suggests it to new readers. And that is the best gift you can give us, even more than money. Well, I don't know. How much money are we talking about here? Well, okay, yeah, if you gave us, like, money to not have to work on anything but Arkham, that'd be different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be better. So That would be the like, dream. One, lots of money. <laughs> Two, leave a review. Three, a little bit of money. So those are like in order. Yeah, actually, the dream project would be uh, to be able to afford to do Arkham full time with Patrick with no concerns with uh, other other things that just do uh, keep the uh, lights on and food on the table. I mean, Arkham, we make money, but we we don't make enough to really right devote ourselves. <laughs> so, is but, there? But we do because because Cat. Uh, the uh, Kat Roca, the uh, publisher of Zero One Publishing, uh, she has put together a situation for us where we can at least make enough money to to support ourselves while we're working on it. You know, we're not yeah. getting rich, but you know, I don't starve to death doing these incredibly detailed pages. So I have to <laughs> say, you know, we're we're lucky in that respect because a lot of people toil away at doing comics that aren't for the big two, and they. You know, make no they, money. They make zero money. They they yeah. make almost nothing, which I've been through before. That was sort of our situation with Arkea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, so I'm lucky that we're we're able to do you know a passion project like this and and get actually get paid a little for it. So let me ask you one last thing here. I see there was a lot of um little bonuses and extras during your Kickstarter phase. Is that, that stuff that people can still buy, or is that something specifically only for the Kickstarter? You'll be able to buy some of it, but really it'll be what what little stock is left over after mm -hmm. everything goes out to the Kickstarter backers. 
So, you know, maybe if we have like 50 or something, we'll sell it on the website. But really, they're going to be limited. There's not going to be a lot of them. Awesome. So, so next time we have a Kickstarter, everybody jump on that because yeah, because I'm looking at some of the stuff because I didn't I didn't hear about this until last week or uh-huh. the before, and I'm like, man, I mean, we actually like to to um, interview people while they're still going through the Kickstarter. That way, it'll give anyone who's listening get a chance to go out and and um, support uh-huh. them. So, um, well, uh, which time. item were you specifically uh, thinking? I was well, I was looking at the um, the some of that stuff that the shot well first of all the shot glass <laughs> and the um, the we'll be selling those oh awesome and also some of the the sketchbooks um, that that Patrick did with his case file Arkham has Cthulhu on the on the on the on it that mm-hmm. stuff I mean of course I I guess that <laughs> something you have to draw but or uh, more make prints of but yeah uh, that that's that that's more that's more real limited but i will tell you one thing i I, di- I didn't mention but i might as well take the opportunity if you want to spend a little more on the book which is to say cover price uh plus shipping uh if you go to my website uh, it's megaflowgraphics.com uh and go to the store section you can order uh case file arkham book from me and i do a sketch in the front uh uh, the front page. So that's oh, but if you do that, you still have to leave a review on Amazon. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay the money and the shipping and leave the review. Yeah. <laughs> well, what if they uh, bought the sh- bought it from Amazon, leaves the review, and then send it to you, pay the shipping, come back? <laughs> yeah. That's fine too. It's a uh, but it's a little more trouble. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, well, I want to thank you very much for giving us the time and for having great work. I, I, I'm when you guys are getting ready for the next Kickstarter, let me know. I'll be more than happy to have you guys back on to talk about the next the next um, chapter in in Hanklin's Detective Hanklin's story. Cool. Hey, it's been great talking to you. Well, my pleasure. And for everyone out there, if you guys have any questions, um, you guys can, you can follow them on Twitter. You guys want to leave your Twitter handle handles um actually the best place to find me is i blog at a website called j com, and ishiro is uh i-s-h-i-r-o um and just quick roundabout uh, explanation uh, that's the pen name i'm using for my prose fiction Mainly because I made the horrible mistake early in life in realizing that josh finney people hear that name and think Jack Finney, <laughs> or often that is what will come up in searches. The uh, search engine will assume you want Jack Finney, who was one of the most successful and well-known sci-fi writers of the 20th century after he wrote <laughs> The Body Snatchers. Terrible, terrible coincidence on my part. So I'm trying to fix it. <laughs> and, and as for me, uh, I, I, I Twitter very badly, so uh, best place... <laughs> Best place to find an old person like me is uh, Facebook. So just look for okay. Patrick McAvoy. I, I've got two sites. I've got Patrick McAvoy. Uh, if you want to just uh, you know see everything, it's got stuff about art, stuff about cats, stuff about politics. But if you just want to see uh, stuff about uh, my art, uh, go to Patrick McAvoy Art on Facebook. And once again, like I said, thank you all for joining us. Uh, you can catch this. Um, we're not 
regularly as um like i said before here the nurse in the crit but when we do get episodes out it's a great episode you can catch us on podbean itunes uh we're working on getting on spotify we're now available on iHeartRadio, um stitcher all the all pretty much any other other website or podcast app that you can find if you if we can't find us on your favorite podcast app let us know we'll work on getting it on there once again thank you guys for joining us and um Thanks to to Josh and to Patrick for for this um, talk that we were able to have. It's your turn to be afraid. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast.